It's been a cooler week, and we're all pretty grateful. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, I'm joined by co-host David Figler and lead producer Sonia Cho Swanson to chat about the endorsement fiascos we're seeing, a new eviction diversion court, and the forthcoming Punk Museum. It's Friday, October 14th, 2022. I'm Vogue Robinson, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. Good morning, Sonia and David. Yay, it's Friday. Yay. 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 We made it. Are we exhausted? I'm exhausted. I don't know about you guys. I definitely laid down and was like, I don't know what today is. It's these transitional (laughs) weeks from super hot to not as hot-ish. Yes. There was a breeze and I was like, hey, girl, thank you. Are we about to get our one week of fall? I can't wait. (laughs) It's coming. It's coming. (laughs) Yeah. There might might be two of them. So yeah, Uh let's hop into the lovely subjects of the day. So there have been these wonderful endorsements because, of course, it is election season. And so what I found super interesting is that the Clark County Education Association, uh, which is a union of teachers, said, we don't endorse none of (laughs) y'all. And I'm like, yes, I love it. I support their non-support. So um, previously they had endorsed Steve Sisolak, who is the current governor. And since then they've said, okay, well, we don't like either candidates. They found their plans to be wanting and insufficient. (laughs) So they feel like the class sizes, I have friends who teach and they have like 40 students in their class, which is appalling and overwhelming and hard for anybody to, to do their job. So They're upset about class sizes. They feel like there's still vacancies, which there have been vacancies for as long as I can remember. There's been a billboard somewhere that's like, please teach in our city. (laughs) And then violence in classrooms, as well as students really needing time to heal and and re, I don't know, like reorient themselves to classroom behavior um, in regards to the time that they were um, not in the classrooms as a result of COVID. So those are all their issues, and they feel like those are not the things that are being properly um, addressed by either candidate. And Clark County School District is the fifth largest school district in the nation. It's huge. So it's not a one-size-fits-all game, but it, there are some things missing. It, it is surprising because they did uh, this union back to select before, as you said. But, you know, there, there's been a riff. There was a riff some years ago in the teachers union and they sort of split into different unions and they kind of take odds with each other. So there's that kind of posturing that's happening at the same time. Watching that debate, it did seem like both sides uh, of the governor's race were s- trying to pander a little bit, probably to this particular union to get that endorsement. And obviously it wasn't successful. So, you know, it'll be interesting, though. Uh, It's always interesting to me, endorsements, how they uh, actually impact voting. Like, you know, there are a lot of underinformed voters uh, who rely on an endorsement of a group that they have alignment with. But how strong that is, I I don't know. But this particular one, you know, teachers unions are a big deal. And as education is part of the topic of the difference between these two candidates for governor, uh, it is interesting that this particular union decided to not participate in endorsements. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, it's very in alignment with when I was a Kayla Grandma would say, oh, 
voting is the voting for the lesser of two evils. And I feel like this was their stance, like, we're not voting for either person. Neither candidate is representing me. And I think this is kind of a trend for human beings, like for the United mm-hmm. States on how we vote. Right. Uh, and maybe, you know, our purpley state, too. <laughs> but, you know, it does beg the question, right? If, you know, if there are voters out there who were relying on the endorsement of, say, this union and this union doesn't endorse, where do they then turn for that type of help? Um, curious. Yeah. Okay. So that's not the only drama that is occurring when it comes to endorsements. I saw that there were some things with Adam Laxalt and who he was and was not endorsed by. David, can you elaborate on that? Sure. So this endorsement letter for Catherine Cortez Masto came out from members of the Laxalt clan. Uh, interesting about it was all they did was talk about the accomplishments and the qualifications of Catherine Cortez Masto. They don't even mention Adam Laxalt by name. What do you think about that? Burn. I thought it was actually really interesting that they emphasized over and over and over again in that letter her Nevada roots, her Nevada grit, her Nevada cred, which feels like a pointed contrast to Adam Laxalt, who didn't actually come to Nevada until his adulthood. Maybe his Nevada roots might be questioned a little. Oh, well, that's always been kind of part of it. Cortez Masto has definitely done some ads that uh, insinuate that he's not really a Nevadan. And, you know, he gets trolled a lot on social media for being a Virginian uh, or for being a carpetbagger, as they call it. But it's one of those things that, you know, look, he, he has a complicated family history. It's so complicated that there are parts of it that if you even mention it, there's a clap back like you're not supposed to get into people's super family secrets and history and deepness. Although, None of it's particularly secret anymore. And he does seem in a a certain way to be trading in on his family name as he did when he became attorney general, kind of out of nowhere, and now again is running for the United States Senate. So, you know, is it off limits to talk about how he was kind of protected having a father who was also a very powerful senator who is not a laxalt and, you know, whose mother was a very powerful lobbyist who also got some benefit from her family name? Is it fair to talk about family names? And is it fair to raise, you know, these ideas of who their parents were or, you know, where they came from? I I don't know. You know, there's so much when some things came out about Adam Laxalt's parentage at the time, he was not running for any office. And his statement that he made to the press was, look, I'm a private citizen and it's not fair to be talking about any of this stuff and I have no further comment. Okay, you know, and that's pretty fair. And now he's a public figure. So is it fair comment? I mean, things change, you know, narratives change. Back before he was a candidate, his military record, because he was a lawyer for the U.S. military, was very innocuous that he gave legal advice on detainee status in Iraq. Now that he's a candidate, he fought terrorism as a member of the military. So, you know, narratives change all the time. But these members of the Laxalt family decided, now we're not going to let him get away with it. We don't like him and you should not like him for the same reason, I think, is the implication. Um, And I'm just waiting three, two, one before you know, his mom and others come out and say, no, Adam is the second coming. (laughs) The second coming. Baby Jesus. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that sucks. I think, you know, from a personal perspective, it would just, it would suck to be like, oh, my family not, is not endorsing me, but they just threw all their political weight behind my opponent. Yeah, 14 members of his family, not just like two or three, 14. It's embarrassing. So that sucks, but I'm sure they have their reasons. Um, oh, no, President they do. Trump, they do. Uh, you know, <laughs> endorses him. So he's a pretty radical candidate. 
you know. And then the final piece of endorsement shenanigans is the Asian Chamber of Commerce. So Sonia, I'm going to let you take on uh, that subject matter and give us the breakdown. Yeah, the Asian Chamber of Commerce came out on Wednesday with their list of endorsements for the 2022 elections. And, you know, I have to say, at first, I was a little surprised. Their endorsement for governor is Joe Lombardo. And um, it was a it was a good reminder for me after I sat down with, like, the data a little bit and looked at it. I was like, you know what? Check myself. Asians are not a monolith. There are a lot of conservative Asians. And I think, too, looking at the list, it, it's not a straight ticket. You know, they endorse Democrats. They endorsed Republicans. So, for example, for lieutenant governor, they endorsed Stavros Anthony. For treasurer, they endorsed Zach Conine. For secretary of state, they endorse Cisco Aguilar. And I think what their primary concern is, is business interests. Who's promoting mm-hmm. the the interests of small business owners because so many members of the Las Vegas Asian Chamber of Commerce are small business owners. And I think, too, thinking about Lombardo's safety ticket, this is just, I think, a reminder for me of how much the anti-Asian violence during the pandemic impacted Asian Americans psychologically. Mm. There's just a lot of like undercurrents of fear running through the community. I, I know, for example, for a long time, my mom, who is Asian, was afraid to go to the gas station by herself at night. If she if she had to drive home, she wouldn't stop at the gas station. And I actually had read this really interesting statistic, which is that gun ownership amongst Asian Americans rose by 43% during the pandemic. And half of those were first-time gun buyers. So thinking about the emphasis on safety, the emphasis on business, and the fact that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are the fastest growing voting group in Southern Nevada, Mm -hmm. I think kind of creates a really interesting dynamic where this is maybe a demographic that candidates are kind of looking at more seriously and thinking about what their concerns and, and their needs are. Yeah, I definitely think anytime it's it's about a, a chamber of commerce, then that's whatever their their voting block is. It's definitely going to have to do with, you know, are our businesses going to be safe? Um, right. You know, are our finances going to feel protected? Do we feel like this person is bringing that subject up? Yeah, yeah. And to David's point earlier, like to whether or not their endorsements have any swaying power, my sense is that it's more a representation of what their members already feel. So I feel to me it's more an indication to kind of see where this particular like block of small um, business owners who happen to also be Asian American are feeling rather than a sense that, okay, they're going to actually sway the vote. That's that's my general sense. But I'm curious what you think, David. Oh, I mean, it, it all comes down to the same thing. Not just this Chamber of Commerce, but other Chamber of Commerces in the Valley coming out with their endorsements. Sometimes I wonder, are, are, are these logical decisions? Are these really self-interest? Have they thought it mm-hmm. all the way through? Or is this, you know, sort of an equivalent of horse trading behind the scenes? You know, like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. well, they promised us this particular thing or we're interested in this thing or, you know, we don't want to go against this person. We do. I mean, there's so much complication to it. So at the end of the day, unless they give like complete, transparent and full reasons for the endorsement, I'm always suspect of any endorsement anywhere. But usually they just wind up to be a list and some people rely on those lists. And that's part of this process. But it is all very curious and it's definitely worth discussing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely have seen people like getting to the polls and not being sure and then pulling up whatever nearby list they can find from a, you know, right. a, a semi-trusted source. I think it's good to try to get prepared as soon or like earlier 
which I know everybody has so many different things to do. But if you can pull multiple lists, like what I tend to do is like, I'll pull David's list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll be like, oh, where's Figler's yeah, list? We have list. to go vote. That list is <laughs> so notorious. I'll pull the Figler list, which has actually details on the why. So I'll pull from David, but I'll pull from like an urban chamber of commerce and look for like, okay, if all four lists are picking the same person, then that might be like, okay, these are things that are in alignment because I'm not a single issue voter. So it, it, and it doesn't, I don't think any of us are, but there are single issue organizations that are pushing particular right. agendas. But I'm consensus, like, I, I like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I'm like, I need multiple sources of information and I want to be a part of multiple conversations. I heard that there's going to be a new eviction diversion court, and I'm interested in what it's going to do for the city. David, can you tell us what it is and and why it's the pros and cons, I guess? Sure. So the county just got a bunch of funding to do something to alleviate the eviction crisis that we saw, especially during the pandemic, where lots and lots of people were losing their housing. So the idea here, in theory is that with all this extra money, we are going, when people enter into the legal process where they're being evicted and it comes to the court's attention, that we should do something more than just like follow the law of an eviction proceeding and maybe there's a way to help people. And so the the theory here is that now we'll have social workers and funding opportunities and all sorts of things to try to keep people if not in the house that they're being evicted from, in some house somewhere. And so theoretically, it would slow down either the eviction process or the process where people were going to have nowhere else to turn with a sort of intervention early on in the process. So that's the theory. How it's actually going to be applied has yet to be seen because it hasn't started yet. Whether it will be effective or not will be things that we're all going to be looking at. But I think the general idea here is that if tenants are struggling in the community for any number of reasons, that the community has an obligation to try to help them get to whatever comes next in their life before they're in this desperate situation of being evicted. So that's the theory. Can I ask a question? Because there's something I didn't quite understand. So this is the creation of a new court. So is is this diversion court going to take place of a regular hearing in front of a judge? Short answer to that is, is yes. So in Nevada... Tenants can receive a notice from their landlord that says, get the hell out. Uh, You have X number of days to do that, usually five days to get out. This is what you've talked about before, summary summary evictions, evictions, right? right. Okay. If the tenant is afraid of that or just gives up or whatever, that's it. They're out. If the tenant wants to challenge that, they are the ones that have to initiate the proceeding. In every other place it is the landlord that goes and initiates the proceeding in court. So here the burden is on the tenant too. So there are tens of thousands. In fact, the majority of summary evictions are never known to the court. So they would not enter into this program per se. They would just be out in the wind. Mm -hmm. These are for the cases where the tenant answers the landlord's notice, and now they're in front of the court. And then theoretically, they would fill out some kind of questionnaire or have some qualifier. And then the judge would say, oh, okay, you look like a good candidate for this diversion where all these people are going to kind of come in from social services or elsewhere and try to help you work through this situation so that you do not wind up without a home. 
And if you can work that out, great. If you can't, you might still get evicted, but at least we're giving it a try. So this is very much focused on the vulnerability of the tenant and trying to get them into a better spot than just a plain old eviction. There are a lot of nuances and things like that. What they're not doing mm. is you know, focusing on, are the landlords being bad? Are they raising the rent by 200% and should they not be doing that? And that's not part of this conversation. This conversation is to provide help and social services for people who wind up in a court eviction proceeding. Gotcha. So it's both a court and a program. Like It's, it's programming built with... around a court process. I think that's the easiest oh. way to phrase it. Hmm. I didn't know that was like a possible thing. Yeah, I mean, that's why they're calling it diversion. It might be a little bit misleading. Mm. I think that because there is an entire set of diversion courts for criminal cases, this is not criminal. This is civil. This is about housing. Yeah. But they adopt the term because basically it's like going off the, the beaten path to try to try something else other than just the court process. So they call it diversion. And it sounds like we could be seeing this as early as next month? Yeah, I think it's timed because there are certain funding mechanisms. Um, there were various federal funding sources which were getting money to landlords to compensate them for some of the losses, et cetera, that were kind of running out. So there was a, a d degree of urgency. Um, this program might also provide, as I understand it, some additional funds to the landlords as well so that they're not out their money, which seems to be so very, very important. So, yeah, it, it, it's intriguing. Um, it's definitely doing something in a big way that wasn't there before. But, you know, personally, without getting rid of that summary eviction process, it's not going to be as effective as it could be. But mm. still good. Still it's something. good. It's something. <laughs> yeah. Thumbs up. Something is good. Yes. Speaking of something, something else that's happening in town uh, that's coming is we're going to get our first or the first, the world's first comprehensive punk museum. That's how they're lauding it. Um, it is going to come to Vegas and it's going to document the worldwide genre that is punk music and welcome punk bands of all shapes and sizes. Some of the stuff they're going to have in it include like Debbie Harry's iconic vulture shirt. And they want it to be like a church of punk rock. And who are they? Who's who's they? <laughs> So NoFX has a frontman, uh, Mike, but he goes by Fat Mike, so that's what we're going to call him. Uh, he wanted a store, and that idea grew to a larger museum. And uh, he's got basically a collective of people who are all putting in money and, and part of the founding team, So including Pat Smear, Brett Gurowitz, Kevin Lyman, and Tony Hawk. So not some bad, not some bad folks behind it. Famous punk rocker Tony Hawk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> punk lifestyle. Punk lifestyle. Yes, right, I was like, yeah. And so there was, yes, I have so many things about that, but <laughs> including, yes, skateboarder Tony Hawk. I was going to open its doors January 13th, so super soon, and it's going to be 12,000 square feet, and it's going to include a wedding chapel and a tattoo shop. It's coming to our town, y'all. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to be the first to say that even having a punk rock museum is seemingly the antithesis of punk ethic. Punk rock music is kind of an effrontery from, from the start. It, it's sort of a snotty middle finger up to the man, to the system, basically saying, you know, we don't accept your weird pop music. We're going to tell the truth. We're going to rail against the systems. Uh, so it's this kind of attitude. You know, a lot of people think of, of punk in the 70s mode, which was something that happened, you know, primarily in 
New York and London and then kind of took over the world in the 70s. People know the Sex Pistols and bands like that. In the 80s, it kind of morphed. There was a Southern California scene, which was very close to Las Vegas. And then you've got the pop punk phenomena when punk finally breaks. And a lot of people consider Nirvana to be the first punk band that broke. And then, you know, it kind of opens the door wide open for a lot of other bands that are kind of under the umbrella punk. So, you know, will the museum celebrate the actual punk rock culture that was very vibrant in Las Vegas for at least a few years from kind of the mid late 80s to the early 90s? I I don't know. I mean, you know, back in those days, uh, all the the local punks would have their shows out in the middle of the desert. They would drag generators out, get them full of dust and bust (laughs) up and the cops would break it up and helicopters would come and everyone would go run in at a place called the Tubes, uh, you know, uh, or Losey Road, or they'd, they'd con- convince the Elks to let them do it in their lodge, you know. You know, it was, it was really a DIY, we're just going to pick up some instruments, teach ourselves how to play it, and just crank out some anti-authority music. I mean, if it was just about the Las Vegas punk scene, you wouldn't need 12,000 square feet. You could put that in a strip mall between a dispensary and a payday loan place, you know. That'd be enough. So I actually think Las Vegas is the perfect place to put a punk rock museum because to me, at least in my era of punk, my friends who are punk, I feel like punk was the province of disaffected suburban youth, right? To me, punk is more, it belongs to the suburbs more than any other place, more than London, more than New York. Whoa, I love that. That is the escape that like kids had when they were like, I live in the bland neutrality of like stuccoed condos that look all the same. Punk is my escape. Punk is my chance to give the middle finger to like all of that. And then on top of that, I feel like in some ways, Las Vegas is a little bit of a middle finger of a city to the rest of the country. You know? Yeah, I like that. So I feel like Vegas is the perfect place for this museum. I'm here for it. I loved seeing like weird, interesting, cool museums in our city. So like even the, was it, I think we have a museum of erotica, erotic heritage museum. So like we have all these really interesting types of museums I like that it's very (laughs) I like that the standard is like if you're in a band then you're in like I wonder how long that criterion is going to last for them (laughs) I think AJ will be really excited to go uh, and I'm down and I didn't realize yeah I just didn't realize like Nirvana is considered a punk rock band because I feel like I grew up with the term like grunge yeah same same just like people who need some vitamin D like (laughs) (laughs) well there's a famous documentary called the year punk broke and it's mm. all about Nirvana. Ah, yeah. See, we I've been subjected to SLC punk, and uh, <laughs> yeah, which is a thing too. I mean, you know, I love Sony's idea. So this punk rock museum is going to be basically in the downtown core, but I would love an offshoot in the suburbs where it's just you know Jimmy Eat World twenty four seven. Oh, yeah. See, I think I know more punk music than I think I know. Can I just indirect? We got a note from our producer, Layla, who says, next to Little Darlings. Yeah, it's going to be right over there in that that area off of Western. Okay, is Little Darlings punk? Yes or no? Oh, of course it is. (laughs) All nude, no drinking? Nah. Nah. I don't know. Their billboards are. Oh, their billboards are pretty punky. Okay, let's get into... The weekend, weekend activities, apparently on Sunday, we're going to see our first uh, high temp of under 90 degrees. So what are are y'all going to do with your fall uh, in Vegas? It is all about the hiking for me because my little dog, Harper, cannot handle the heat. Like she can just just cannot go on hikes when it's hot out. Mm -hmm. So I finally get to take her out um, and go hiking with her, which I'm really excited about. Yay. And there's an episode about hiking with your pup. That we've got. Yes. And in the newsletter, Scott 
put a list of like it's a link to different uh, hiking places you can go to. So you can check the newsletter out for that. Nice. So I'm probably going to get dragged into some hiking situation against my will because this household loves hiking, including the pup. But, you know, I tend to take my cues from the Friday CityCast Las Vegas roundup of how I spend my weekend because it always puts me in the mood. So I'm just going to lock myself in the in in the house and play a bunch of uh, really crappy pop punk. That's what I'm going to do just <laughs> over and over. I'm going to yeah. I'm going for it. I'm going for it. Pop punk listening party at David's. Yeah. We're headed over there. Painting my nails black. See you in a minute. <laughs> I didn't know it, but apparently we live super close to Gilcrease Orchard. <laughs> like oh. I had no freaking clue. Oh, get on that. Apple cider donuts. Yeah. Oh my God. The apple cider donuts. Yes. Right. They're so good. And then the wheelbarrows. Oh, the cute wheelbarrows. David and Sonia, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation this morning. And I hope you all both have a fabulous weekend. You too, y'all. Thank you. You too. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our lead producer is Sonia Cho Swanson, and our producer is Layla Mohammed. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets, and our hosts are David Figler and me, Vogue Robinson. <laughs> OG Moose composed our theme music with additional music by All the Kimonos and Epidemic Sound. We record this show on the traditional homelands of the Nubuvi, the Southern Paiute tribe. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Happy weekend, y'all. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, I'm joined, I'm joined, I'm Johned. <laughs> I'm John Doe. <laughs> That's not a good joke at all. No, but John Doe is a famous punk rock figure.